Lord, we just thank for this day. We ask you to lead and guide us as we look at your word and as we go through these psalms that you would show us what you'd want us to see through this. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Psalm 76. We didn't finish it last week, so we're going to read the whole psalm to get context, and then we'll be jumping in in the middle of it. So, To the chief musician on Niganoth, a psalm or song of Asaph. In Judah is God known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There break ye the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword and the battle, Selah. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted are spoiled. They have slept their sleep, and none of the men might have found their hand. None of the men of might have found their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse are cast into a dead sleep. You, even you, are to be feared, and you, and who may stand in the sight where once you are angry. You did cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth, Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The, remain, the remainder of wrath shall you restrain. Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Let all that be around about him bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of the princess. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. All right, so we left off at verse 7 last week, so we're going to start out at verse 8. It says, You did cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. So basically we saw God starting to move in the last week, and, he, and uh, the chariots, the horses, the, the, the armament, the mighty men, everybody could not move. And the verse says, it says, you caused judgment to be heard from heaven. When God moves, he moves swiftly and people know that it's him. We saw that in Egypt when, when he moved in the 10 plagues. There was no question that God had defeated Egypt, if you remember, because that was what, from that point on to the time that Joshua actually enters the land, and that's 40 years later, the people are still talking about how God <laughs> judged Egypt. And you remember Har uh, Rahab told the spies, we're afraid of you because of what your God did to Egypt, how he took you through the Red Sea. That, that word had gone through everywhere. I like that story. <laughs> you like that story? He met it. Yeah, he meant, I mean, yeah. when God went through the ten plagues, he yeah. judged every god of Egypt. And when, remember, we went back over there, you know, in the, in the Exodus class, every one of those plagues was against a particular god or multiple gods of Egypt. When the river was turned to blood, it was the god of the river that he was judging. When the blackness, darkness came, it was Ra, the, the god of sun, who was being, being beat. And God showed that he was greater than all the gods of Egypt. When, mm -hmm. when uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was judged with the brimstone and destruction of that entire valley, the word and the remembrance of that has become a byword ever since, but I mean, the people knew about it. In the book of Revelation, when God judges, he's saying, I'm showing you who I am, and the purpose is always to get people to come to him. Okay, the if purpose was, is... 
Yeah, if he would do that now, which I wish he would sometime, people would change. They would, no, they wouldn't. They, would they didn't in Egypt, they didn't yeah, in right. and they didn't in Canaan, and they won't in Revelation. And if he showed his power, yes, there would be some that would change, but as a group of people, as, a, as nations, no, they would not change. You look at Egypt, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, his people's heart was hardened until close to the end. When they were finally telling him, would you just please get rid of these people? Our country is being, our country is being destroyed. But they still didn't recognize it as God. God who did it. It seemed like the Canaanites understood it was God more than the, than the Egyptians. But it, you know, that's what a lot of people say. If God would just come down and show himself to us, everybody would change. Well, they didn't change when Jesus came. God was here among us, and the bulk of the people did not change, especially the leaders. But I'm thinking if you would just strike down some of the powerful people that think they're right and they're wrong, I think mm, Still wouldn't change, unfortunately. Yeah, that's sad. In, and it, I mean, we are starting to see God's judgment. I really believe that the, the things that are happening in this world, the mighty storms and, and tornadoes in diverse places and earthquakes in diverse places and the multitude of the, the heavy weather, I, believe, I personally believe are God's judgments upon this world for rejecting him. Believe, but, people yeah. don't, but people don't accept that. I believe that when all this happens, that people wake up. It could be you, Nick. Are you ready? And that's basically what it should be. But people are not turning to God. 9-11 hit America, and yeah. Americans went to churches and, and other religions, but they went to churches and droves, but did not truly repent and become godly a year or two later, it was just back to normal. Mm -hmm. And that's what you see. Something bad happens. People kind of turn to God as, you know, as a, as a, a solace and a crutch for a while and then go right back to who they are because they're following religion and not getting into a relationship with God. They're trying to follow a bunch of, let's try to do good things and make God happy with us instead of really turning their life to be in a relationship with him. So, yes, I understand. It would really be nice if God just said, you know, did these and people responded. But unfortunately, they don't. They haven't in history, and they, and won't. they won't in the future. And the, all of Revelation is about the whole idea of trying to get people to come to God. You know, here's my power. Here's what I'm doing. Come to me. And people basically shaking their fist at God and getting angry. And that's usually what you hear. Some yeah. act of nature, some big destructive act is, why did God let this happen? Well, he did it because you're, being, you're living in a bad lifestyle and you deserve the punishment. And I always like that one thing you said, and I always remember it now, nothing is new under the sun. Mm -hmm. And so that happened before, and it'll happen again. Yeah. And the same result will happen again. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. Yeah, the same result, he'll do it again, and the same, same thing will happen again. Certain people, there's always a handful who yeah. recognize mm -hmm. God's hand and turn to him. But the majority will, all, will shake their fist at God, be angry at him, and go back into their lifestyle that, that drew it in the first place. And we see it in the scriptures, we see it in history, we see it in, in the predicted future of Revelation. And here's this, God causes his judgment to be heard. Those who have an ear will hear his judgment. And all through the scriptures, you know, it said, he that has an ear, let him hear. Mm -hmm. In Isaiah, a lot of times in Revelation, especially in the first part of it, let him that has an ear hear. And Jesus said the same thing over and over. You know, I speak in parables so that those who have an ear will hear. Because he wants to make sure that we're listening. Because it's easy for man just to reject. 
and we look in Revelation. I mean, it's amazing in Revelation, just a couple of weeks, chapters ago in our Revelation class, we were talking about the angel flying through the sky declaring the gospel. And people are still not going to respond to an angel flying through the sky declaring the gospel of God. Well, they didn't respond to the angel, right? Well, it hasn't come. The angel hasn't come yet. That's, at the end, that's just before the trumpets, uh, before the vials. So they won't. Many will not respond even to an angel shouting from the sky the gospel message. And this is the sad thing for man. We are, we are almost hopelessly deceived unless God really opens our eyes and, we can, and the Spirit helps us to see and we relent to the Spirit. And here he's saying, your judgments will be heard. His judgments are not quiet judgments. The more we reject him, the more we fight against him, the more the judgment will be announced. And he also says that your sins will be shouted from the housetops. If you don't repent from your sins, your sins will be revealed at some point. That will be the last step that God does before taking you home. And that happens even in real life. You do something bad, eventually it's found out. Yeah. It always yeah. is found out. Yeah. It's always found out. And that's exactly, and it's both for Christians and non-Christians, it will be found out. And the more significant your life has in people's other people's lives the more it will be shouted out and the more it will affect we see evangelists who are you know that, that have pretended to live a good life while they evangelize and not repented of their sins and done things and because they have a large audience their sin gets a large audience and the larger your influence over people the larger that audience is that's going to hear about unrepented sin and we've got to be careful because sin must be repented of and confessed. And if you don't want to do it, God will bring it out. Now, he doesn't do it right away. He gives you plenty of opportunity to repent. But his judgments always are heard. Always. What's the matter? And the earth feared and was still. When God speaks, even things... And I, I don't know, have you ever been in a place where you feel like God is chastising you and everything seems to be standing still? Uh-huh. Yeah. God, I wish you this time went by as fast as the rest of the time went by, but this is everything seems to just come to a standstill. A lot of it is our guilt, because we know we're guilty, and we know we can't do anything about it when he starts the judgment. And, and you don't know which way to go. Yeah, you don't know which way to go. You're, you're, you have to trust him. And then the fear sets in. Yep. Mine says the earth feared and was still. That's what mine says. Still, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What verse? Eight. 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 The second part of it. Verse nine. When God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth, Selah, God defends the meek. God defends the weak. And this is something we have to understand. If you feel like you're never able to defend yourself and get, why, uh, get, you know, get a resolving of your problems, God will defend. Stay back and be quiet. And this has been our theme all through, all through Psalms. God is our defense. You taught me that. I let God be my defense. I don't even say anything. Isn't it so much easier when you do? Yes. When you let God defend you, Instead of he, arguing and fighting back and trying to get your point across, yeah. just, just stay silent and let God be the And he does a great job. Back and, just listen. 
And as we've said, if you want to try to defend yourself, God will step back and say, okay, you go ahead and defend yourself. You make a mess out of it. And it's always a mess when you try to defend yourself. And so I hope for, for, us, for us as we go, let's learn early and young to let God be our defense. Because the more we just sit back and say, God, you are my defender. And that's what he says. I am your fortress. I am your shield. I am your defender. I'm your buckler. I'm your strong fortress. I'm your strong tower. He can't be more clear, especially in Psalms, that he wants you just to hide in him and let him defend you. Mm -hmm. And no matter how strong we think we are, our best bet is to just hide in God. Just step back and hide in him. And to me, I really have this real feeling where I can really feel it. And it, it feels so good. I think like these people in this world are missing this. Yeah. And I'm so thankful that I caught on, back on, and I didn't let him go mm -hmm. ever. Yeah. But to let him be our defender is so much easier than trying to defend ourselves. I wish I would have known that 30 years ago. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Your age. <laughs> but God will do it. He'll come to rescue, to, to deliver all of the meek of the earth. And this is things, number one, that everybody needs to learn. And I can't emphasize it enough. Let God be your defender. Let him defend. It doesn't mean we let people take advantage of us to let him be our defender. But we also don't argue and, and fight with everybody. Because I, I know for a fact, every time I try to argue and fight with somebody, I'm going to say the wrong things. Because I, I've already told you all, well, I'm really slow to come up with the right answer. I think about the right answer about two hours after I'm done talking to the person and go, I should have said that. That would have been the right thing to say. And it's usually not what I said back then. You get so mad, you just forget. You just let it all out. Yeah. So we want to, we want to look at that. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remainder of wrath shall you restrain. And this is kind of a strange verse. I had to actually go to commentaries to kind of get some ideas on on what this was talking about, and most of the commentaries have no idea what it's talking about either. <laughs> Nobody knows what this is really referring to. The best answer I saw that they came up with is that God uses the wrath of men to discipline. And that that's what they were talking about, how when Israel was judged and Judah was judged, he, God used Assyria and Babylon to come in and conquer them, and then he punished Assyria and Babylon later on for their conquering of of the people. And I, it sounds okay to me, it kind of makes a little bit of sense, but I'm going to tell you, I don't really understand any better than any of the commentaries that I read. Uh, so this is one, and it says, the remainder of the wrath you shall restrain, and this is why mo the combination of that verse is why they believe that it's talking about God allowing the wicked to exercise his judgment and then punishing, punishing them there, thereafter. And I'm out of, out of my reading, that's the best, and I'm going to I'll probably stick with that. It's, it's talking about God controlling those who, are mis, who uses to a discipline. Like he used, okay, Babylon is not Assyria, right? No. Okay. You got the Assyrian Empire, then you had the Babylonian Empire, and then you had the Medo-Persian Empire. What's the king's name of the Assyrian Empire that come after him? It came before them. Huh? It was before Babylon. Yeah, but I don't who, whoever took Israel captive in the history books, it's unbelievable, cruel, 
And the man was so evil, he wouldn't put what dad had done in the palace where he could hear the screams yeah. and tortures of the people. And God said, you went too far. Yeah. And he told the, told the Babylonians the same thing. You went, you went a little too far. And, and they were disciplined. And that's why I do believe that this verse is talking about it. And remember, we talked about Asaph seems to be very prophet, prophetic in all of his psalms. He either, these are either psalms written after the captivity or he was prophetic because 75 was the same way, 76. All of these were his psalms and he predicts very clearly the future. Or he's writing after, and it could be somebody in his, the, the choir of Asaph. So we're gonna we're just gonna I'm gonna stick with this idea that God says that He's gonna hold the people accountable for their when they when He uses them to discipline that His dis, they they're being used by Him to show His praise and then He's going to restrain their wrath to so because they don't want to see Him destroyed and this is what God does with us when God disciplines us He is not looking to destroy us and sometimes it looks like He's trying to destroy us. Sometimes we feel like he's trying to destroy us. And we look at somebody like Job. And Job had everything taken away from him, including his health, everything except for his wife. And all of his possessions, all of his family, his health was taken. And I can guarantee you, Job was thinking, God, you know, and, he, and we know that's true because he says, so God, just take me home. I'm tired of this. You know, I shouldn't even have been born. It's so bad. Okay. And, but his faith was so strong. Well, his faith was interesting when you really read the poetry closely. He, he, was, he, was, he was in hard times as well because when his friends, so-called friends or disciples more likely, the people he had taught, they were te telling him what he already knew. Righteous people did not suffer. Yeah. Okay, that's what he understood from God. We think that this whole name it and claim it uh, prosperity gospel is new. It goes all the way back to Job. All the way back before Job probably because Job got it from someplace. And his mindset was righteous people do not suffer. And if you are suffering, you've done something wrong. So when Job is suffering and he's been offering sacrifices, being forgiven, searching out God and... All of a sudden, he loses everything. In his mindset, that is something that was reserved only for the most evil, awful people that would have that happen to him. And his friends, which there are many people believe that he, he was their teacher, he was their one that he had taught them, came back to him. And if you read Job real carefully, they accuse him of sin. And his answers basically boil down to, I know that what you're saying is true, but... I don't deserve what you know. I don't deserve this. And then, of course, they come back saying, "Quit, quit saying that you're righteous, and and just admit that you were that you've done something really awful." Because we all know that you've done something really awful. Otherwise, would you bad. wouldn't have lost everything. Yeah. Okay. And that's what they kept saying back to him. And he'd go, "Well, I understand what you're saying. I I understand that that, that this is a result of something awful. But I don't. I didn't do anything awful. Okay. And that's the whole book of Job over and over and over again." until God steps in, okay? And none of those people obviously had the advantage of the first couple chapters where we're told Satan went to God and said, hey, he's only following you because you're, you're protecting him. But it's a great picture for us of God sending judgments to try our faith. 
And it is true. Job had a great, great, great amount of faith to be able to stay focused on God. Especially in the beginning days, you know, you know, telling his wife, you know, can we take good from him and not, not evil? Even though he didn't understand it, he was going to say, God has, he says God has the right to do it. He had a great theology in many ways, and God was teaching him. But Job is a great example of why God does these things. When God puts us in a vice, many times it's to test what we believe. Do you, number one, do you believe what you believe? And, and even when it's under stress, will you continue believing it? That's one form of test. Okay, God, I believe that you are absolutely just and right and you're going to protect me. And then he puts us in a very hard position and says, do you really believe that I'm going to protect you? Okay. You know, the issue, it really almost the one way Job had is that I'm going through right now really is that I'm accused of doing something that I know I have not done. Mm -hmm. And like you say, God has just put it in, and I, before I would always, you know, okay, yeah, but I put him, I'm not going to say, yes, I did, because yeah. I didn't. Mm -hmm. But in a way, how you said it, it sounds like what I'm going through, I'm just one little part. Yeah. Nothing like the whole thing with Job. Well, no, no, Job is an extreme, yeah, extreme yeah, 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 case yeah. all the way around. But the first test is always. But that makes me feel better. Just how you said that. Yeah. Is always do you believe what do you believe what you believe? Yeah. He'll put you in a heart. You know, my, one of my favorite verses: "All things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God." If you say, if you're learning that verse and you're saying, "God, I really believe this verse," and you're being taught that verse, the next thing you know, something bad is going to happen. To see, do you really believe that all things work together for good? And at the end of it, you'll see that God has worked it together for good, but it's a test. Another, another test is, as in Job's, he's going to take things away. He's going to test your theology. What do you believe about God? Job believed that God blessed proper behavior and punished bad behavior, and that was the only way bad things could happen to you. God stepped in and said, I just want to show you that I'm sovereign and I can do what I want to do. And so those are the two big test areas that we come into. Testing what we believe and testing our theology as a whole. And this is important because if your, if your theology is off, and theology is a fancy word for just saying your knowledge and understanding of God. Theo, God, ology, study. Okay? We all have theology. Every one of us at this table have theology what we believe to be true about God, from either the Word of God, our experience, what we've been taught, and it may or may not be correct theology. Only if you can get into the Scripture can you know that it's correct and you need it to be changed. That's why I think when I'm going through to me it's easier now because I'm just, like I said, I'm thinking, I'm just letting God, it's in your hands, you know, I'm not... I mean, I believe what I believe, and I'm not changing it. Well, the more we're grounded in God's word, the easier it is to walk with him through the trials. It took me 59 years to do this. Jeez. It took me about 47. Well, it is done in the right timing, though. God has always put it out there for us, and yet we don't always respond. And then, Push it aside. And we push it aside, or we, or maybe we don't get the right teachers, or whatever it is. Or we live the secular life. Or you don't life. recognize. Or you, or you don't recognize. What was that? I, you live the secular life. You live the secular life, and you're not living to yeah, yeah, to yeah. follow into God's steps. 
and but his word is critical. Because like I said, I always believed in God, but never really follow focus on him. Yep. You know, I never worship any other gods. I don't even know. But now since I'm focusing on him and let your ear hear, yes, I'm letting my ear hear. Speak when you need to speak, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the key on this is always important. God has the truth in the Word of God. The problem is that we go along in most of our life and saying, well, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live the way I think the truth is. I don't care what, you know, we, we get into the Aristotle and, and, uh, and um, Plato's view of there is no, that we can't really know truth or how can we know truth and we forget that God's word is true and we start trying to figure it out ourselves. And most people will spend a lot of their life trying to figure out truth and not live by it. And Satan is out there ready to give you a whole bunch of lies. We've talked many times about this. God, for every truth that God has, Satan has multiple lies. God tells us the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. Satan's going to come, do good works, be better than the rest, uh, you know, live 98 million lives in reincarnation, and eventually you'll live the life that, get, that is perfect. Uh, or 200 million lives, whatever it takes to get to perfect. Uh, you know, do more good than bad. Uh, no, there's no God at all. Don't even care. You know, because there's no life afterwards. All these different ways that Satan comes in and lies to us, and we don't hold on to the truth. This is the key. The more we get into his truth, the easier life gets to be. And I really, truly believe the more we're in his word, the more we apply his word to our life, the easier our life becomes because we're living in truth. We're walking the path of truth. I don't have to sit there and try to figure out, who am I? You know, I remember the 70s. The big thing was, you got to find out who you are. You know, go find yourself. Well, no, go lose yourself into crucifixion and get into God. Because <laughs> he's got the answers. And yet people were doing all these crazy things to try to find out who they are. And they'd walk around aimlessly for for years of their life trying to, trying to find pleasure and, and you know, what makes me feel good. Well, unfortunately, nothing is going to make me feel good if I'm trying to fill a God-shaped vacuum in my life. And that's the problem that we have. Every single person has a, has a hole in their life that only God can fill. Mm -hmm. And if you don't let God fill it, you're going to try to fill it out with a whole bunch of junk that still won't fill it. And God is saying, I'm here depend on me and you're all saying well I waited too long well good thing you did it now and not another 10 years from now <laughs> so wherever we start it's good better than having not started I just feel sorry for God because he had a lot of work with me <laughs> well just think about the people who didn't respond at all he's got a real lot of work with them yeah. uh, but this is really critical for us God is out there with truth. Are we willing to surrender to him? And the more of our life we surrender to him, the better off we are. And this, is, this was done in Evangelism Fellowship many years ago. They showed the heart with the, with the throne on it. And they said, where is God? You know, for the, for the lost person, God is out even outside the heart. He's not even in the heart. <laughs> for many Christians, they have God in their heart but not on the throne of their heart. They're going, God, I'll, I'll, I'll use you when I want you. You just kind of, you're, you're here, God, thank you that I'm going to heaven, but uh, 
I'll take care of my life unless things really get bad. But the real victory in our life comes when God sits on the throne and we say, you're in charge. He's 24-7 in charge. Yeah, 24-7, 365, mm -hmm. 365 in charge. And that is where we're supposed to be. And I, and I kind of joke about it. a lot of people have God even in their heart, but he's stuck back in the back bedroom, no. you know, with, behind a locked door saying, when I need you, when I get with the curtains drawn, no, well, nobody will let you know you're in this room, and, but when I need you, I'll call you out and you can help me. And unfortunately, we make fun about that, that but that is the way a lot of people live with God. You know, if he is even there, he's stuck way back in the, in the basement or the attic where nobody can see him. And he is saying, I'm going to be on your throne. And if we don't put him there, life can be miserable. He can make life miserable for us when we don't put him on the throne. And at that point, if you don't have him on your throne, you really have to be, cons be thinking, is he even in my life? But when you do have him on your throne, life is so much better. Oh, it's so much better because you've got a guide. It's, it's like trying, if you think about when people were trying to get it from the East Coast to California, they didn't just get in a, in a covered wagon and, and, and sh that they were smart. <laughs> they didn't just get in a covered wagon and try to go across the United States and keep heading west. Why? Because there were Indians, there were, there were uh, canyons, there were... Mountains you couldn't pass. Rivers. They would, the rivers. They would go find a wagon train to get involved with, with a guide. And mm -hmm. the guide would take them safely, generally, <laughs> across. And this is the same thing if you're wanting to see something that you don't really understand. You get a guide to help you through. Jesus is our guide to help us through life. And when we use him as the guide, life is better. <laughs> doesn't mean it's going to be smooth. It doesn't mean it's going to be without hardship. But the good news is the hardships are what's good for us. And hardships actually do build our faith and our character. I don't, have you ever thought of what life would be like if you hadn't gone through any of the trials you went through? Mm -hmm. Easier. You, well, you might be surprised that it might not have been easier. Be dead. Well, not only that, but where you are today is a result of the hardships that you went through. And if you face the hardships that you face today without having gone through the hardships in the past, you'd be at a loss. Okay. You'd be at a loss on how do I get through this. Okay. And it's hard to understand that, but if you really think it through, that what you've learned in the past is what helps you get through the trials that you're facing now. And you won't go through it again because you already went through it and you know how. Hopefully you won't go through it again <laughs> if you really learned. But if you played sports or anything, you start learning really easy stuff, and then you build upon those easy things, you know, you, you know, and you learn how to do harder and harder things because you've done the easy things. And it's probably true of dance and even sewing. And you know, you're not going to go out and sew the most delicate material on your first time trying to sew. You know, you're going to learn on something durable so that you learn the right way to, to stitch. At least I would think you would. <laughs> I mean, if you tried to do the delicate, you'd be in trouble if you didn't know how to do it. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Same thing in life. God starts us out with things that, that are, that, that at the time seem hard. I mean, when you're first learning, everything seems hard. But as you build upon that, it's not as hard. But if you tried to do the hardest thing you ever knew, learned how to do, and it was the first time you ever did it, you'd probably, you know, panic. <laughs> 
So God's using all these trials to build strength. When you do weightlifting, you don't go straight to trying to lift 300 pounds if you want to keep your muscles intact. You, you start out with a lower weight and you, and you build the repetitions and then you work your way up to a high weight. And God's doing the same thing in our life. He's given us small problems, which at the time seemed big. Okay, and I'm not going to try to belittle any problem you're facing is big to you where you're at. But it's, if you look back on a problem and say, that problem that I thought was big, and you look back and say, wow, why did I ever think that problem was, that, that was a hard thing to go through. It was, so, it was so easy. It wasn't easy when you were going through it, but you look back on it and say, wow, if I had to go through that again, I'd just, I'd sail through that with no problem because you learned the lessons. You learned how to deal with those things. And God's saying, I'm going to build you. I'm going to build you. And I've said it before. You know, if God showed you where he wants you to be 20 years from now, and all of a sudden he was to show you today, it would probably paralyze you. <laughs> okay? Same thing 20 years ago. If he showed you where you were at now, you probably would have gone, no way, God. There's no way I would have done that or could get through that or, or been able to handle that. And he, because he's grown us to this point. And the same thing, you know, and I use children as that issue. You know, that poor baby on the ground, you know, starts trying to stand up and walk. And if he doesn't walk on the first step, you're not sitting there saying, well, you stupid kid, you're, you know, you're just so lazy and you're, and you're so dumb, you can't walk. You know, no, we go, we go right over the kid and we help him stand up and say, now here you go, come on, let's get those legs stronger. And that's the way God is with us. He's going to teach us. He's going to teach us to crawl. He's going to teach us to walk. He's going to teach us to run. He's going to teach us to jump. He's going to teach us to fly. Okay, but he doesn't say, okay, I want you to fly on the very first problem that, you know, we're going to give you a really hard problem and I want you to soar like an eagle above that problem until you've learned how to get there. God can teach God can teach an old dog new tricks, but that's the truth. <laughs> All the time. All right, verse 11. Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Let all that be around him bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. Vow. This is kind of an interesting thing because all through the Old Testament, God talks about paying your vow. When you make a promise to God, he expects it to be paid. And even at this point of when you made a vow, you also had to give an offering when you paid your vow. It wasn't just, okay, God, I'm going to do such and such. Well, when you went to do it, then you had to go in with the sacrifice. The sacrifice of uh, fellowship and the, the one that's a party with God that we've been talking about in, in Leviticus and Numbers. Where, you got to, where God got his part, you got your part, and the priest got his part. And you had to eat the vow, all the, all the sacrifice. If it was a voluntary vow within two days, if it was an involuntary vow within one day. Does everybody remember those sacrifices we've been talking about? Uh, the, but it has... It was very serious. When you made a promise to God or a, a, an agreement with God, you must fulfill it. And we kind of take that for granted in our day. Or don't make it at all. It's better not to make it at all if you don't plan to keep it. Or you're not sure that you can keep it. Don't make a promise to God. But if, once you say, God, I'm going to do something, you better do it. Because he's going to hold you accountable to it. And here he's referring back to the vows that people made. Remember the judge who said that God if you give me this victory I'm going to offer the first thing that comes out of yeah. my house his, his daughter. and it was his daughter that he, that, he, that he had to give up and now 
The offering wasn't a burnt offering in this case. It was he put her into the service of the, the temple so that she would no longer be able to be free from it. So that was a very harsh vow, and it broke his heart because it was his only child. Okay, He was hoping that a dog or a, you know, a rooster or something would run out of the house because, you know, hard to believe, but the, the animals oftentimes lived in the house where it was warmer during the cold weather. Now, we're not talking about cats and dogs, though. We're talking yeah. about the, the pigs and the goats and the sheep. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, he was, he was expecting one of the animals to be the first thing, you know, to run out of the house when he got home. And, it, you know, it was his daughter. And he knew he had to keep his vow. And that vow would have been to take her to the temple and a sacrifice <laughs> as a as a fulfillment of the but of the like vow. That, she asked for a month to be able to bewail her, the fact that she would never get married and have children because she was going into the service, yes. So, and it says, let all that be around him bring presents unto him, for he ought to be feared. God, all through the scriptures, talks about giving sacrifice, giving the offerings. He expects offering. We look at Abraham. Abraham came back from battle and he gave God, in the, in the form of Melchizedek, a tenth of all of his, all of his uh, winnings. People were always giving to God as joyful sacrifices. And all through the Old Testament, God had sacrifices that were mandatory, three of them that were mandatory, and the five feasts, that, uh, seven feasts that they had that they had to give sacrifices for. But other than that, he gave them more than plenty of opportunities to give them voluntary offerings. And we've talked about the burnt offering. The burnt offering was a voluntary offering. And does, what does the burnt offering represent? Sin. Sin. No, that's the trespass offering. Oh. The burnt offering. Or the picnic with God. No, that's no. the fellowship offering. Oh. Total dedication was the burnt offering. All goes to God. Total. Right. Total dedication. You were saying, God, this is the symbol of my giving my whole to you, was this burnt offering that was taken up, everything except for the hide, which went to the priest. But the burnt offering was, here's my dedication, God. I am symbolically showing you that I am totally dedicated to you. And that was a voluntary offering that they made. And so we want to be able to see this. God is wanting us to be dedicated to him. And that means whatever it means. Uh, heard, a, heard a story this morning on the radio while I was getting, getting dressed. This Indian guy was telling the story about this young Indian who felt that he was called to this town, I don't Boonhi or whatever, Bonhi or something. And he goes, I know God's calling me, and I know that they've killed other missionaries there and... Uh, and and that, you know, it's dangerous. So he went there, and they chased him away. Because <laughs> if you're still here tomorrow morning, we're going to kill you. So he ran back to the mission and said, I know God called me there. I know God called me there. And the head guy of the mission goes, are you absolutely sure God called you there? And he goes, yes, I know that he called me there. And his response was, well, go back. And he goes, well, they're going to kill me. And he goes, heaven is better than Bundy, or whatever the name of the town was. Yeah. You know, that is the key. What is the worst the world can do to us when we're obeying God is to almost kill us. If they kill us, they send us to, they send us to God. That's good. Which is a great thing. Yeah. So what have we got to be afraid of? Nothing. Nothing. 
the, the, Jew, the disciples kept going out and they got beat and kept being told, don't, say, don't speak in God's name. And what was their attitude? We've talked about this so many times. And th thank you, God, for letting me have this opportunity. Thank you that you count me worthy of suffering. That's not the American Christian way to think usually. It better start being because we're going to face tribulation probably soon. We need to start coming to the conclusion of, if I suffer, thank you, God, that you have counted me worthy of suffering. Because if we don't have that attitude, we're going to be discouraged and quit. If we don't have the attitude that suffering is something he counts us worthy of, he says, I believe you have the strength to, to, to go through this and to make it by, by, by depending on me. And we get that attitude, thank you, God, that you've determined that I was worthy. I think that's why we go through a lot of trials, because we suffer, and I think this is just leading up to It's the trials. It's, the, it's, yeah. this, it's, it's to prepare us for the really bad stuff that will be coming. And it is coming. It is coming, and you can see it. You can see it in the articles on newspapers, the comments on the, on the web pages, the things that people are making out in secret with, be, behind these pseudonym names and how critical and attacking they are of Christians. This world is changing for us. We better be ready to suffer more than just this you know, name calling and being made fun of. It is going to come very soon to actual suffering for him. And if we're not ready, we're gonna be shocked. And I wanna make sure that we're ready. We're ready for what's coming. Revelation is just around the corner. And before Revelation comes, we will have suffering for the church to purify the church before the rapture. And it will be physical punishment, just as it was during all through the scriptures, and especially right after Jesus left. They suffered to be Christians. Jesus said, they hated me, they will hate you. And the sad thing, especially in America, is that the church has been so acceptable because we don't lift Christ, Jesus Christ up. And we need to be lifting him up. And the more we lift him up, the more we're going to become a target for the world. Number one, because we, we're, we're, we're different, we're weird, we're strange. <laughs> we don't think cool. like they do. The more you get into Christ, the more you read about him, the more I actually can say things about him. And, I'm not a, I'm not, and I don't care what they think of me. Because yeah. I know I'm right. For and, once, I'm right. <laughs> but that's true. We're, we're in the Word. We know the Word. We understand the Word. And we can be very bold because I have the right answers. When I was in high school, I used to, especially in science classes, when they would talk about evolution, I would stand very strong that we are created. And I had lots of arguments for it, you know, but I knew the truth. The truth does not, it does not need a lot of defense. It might surprise you, but Christian schools teach evolution. They just don't teach it as a fact or as a... They just say, this is what most people believe. Here's the truth, but here's what a lot of people are believing. And then they show you why it can't be true and all these other, all these other things. But God created the heaven and the earth and everything in it in seven days. Well, six days plus a day of rest. Because yeah, I, I know I'm right. I just have to learn how to present it the right way. Right. That's what my main goal is. And when we give the gospel, and this is why I say, I don't need to know what others believe 
you know, to be able to give the gospel. I don't need to know what Mormons believe, Jehovah's Witnesses believe, Muslims believe, Buddhists believe, uh, Krishna believe. I don't need all these other Ishna, uh, you know, ists out there. I don't need to know what they believe. Because the truth is, we're sinners. We deserve hell. Jesus paid for, the, paid for us, and we have to accept him as our Lord and Savior. That's all I need to know to be able to give the gospel to them. Now, if they don't want to believe it or understand it, that's not my problem. And all I'm called to do is tell the gospel. I can't argue them into the kingdom. I can't twist their arm into the kingdom. I can't try to force them into the kingdom. None of that will work. I give the gospel, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict them. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting them, I may be the one that gets to, re, you know, get to hear them say the prayer. And... I may be the one that plants the first seed. I may be the one that waters the seed. I may be the one that actually gets to harvest the seed, but God is the one that gets the glory no matter what. It's him that gets the glory. It's said that the average person has to hear the gospel six to eight times before they respond. You don't know where you are in that presentation. You might be the first one or you might be the eighth one. I'm not sure how they get that story, but because here's a testimony you usually go... Uh, I would, you know, on this such and such date, I heard the gospel, and I, for the first time, I heard the gospel. And I can't tell you how many people I've had heard hear that, say that testimony and going, what do you mean it was the first time you heard the gospel? I told you two years ago, you know, especially for somebody you know. But in reality, it probably is the first time they heard the gospel, more than just the brain hitting, you know, hitting the brain, but actually heard and understood. He that has an ear, let him hear. Yeah. And it was the first time their ear actually heard, you know, their brain actually heard what the ear had been, been told several times. So, yeah, I don't argue with them because I know that it may be literally the first time they actually heard it. But this is the power of God. The Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit is the one. And God says his word does not return void. You always just give people the word of God. You know, use... Use the word when you're, when you're given the gospel. John 3, 16 is a great one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why did he do it? Because God loved. Who did he love? The world. What did he do? He gave his son so they shouldn't perish. That's the gospel message. In one verse, that's the message. The sad thing is, most of us quote that verse without ever thinking about it. Because we've known it for so long that we're familiar with it and we don't see the power of that verse. The great power, the whole gospel is in that verse. Now, my favorite is the Romans road. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then it says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then the last one, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay? You give these verses to people. You talk about these verses to people. Use these verses to share the gospel with people because someday they will be in a place where all of a sudden this verse will come alive and real to them. And they'll remember it because God's word does not return void. And then this last one, last verse in here, he shall cut off the spirit of the princes. He is, a, he is terrible to the kings of the earth. And this terrible does not mean awful or bad. Uh, bad. It means 
awe-inspiring. Okay? And what he's saying here is God will deal with those who think that they're pretty hot stuff, in other words. He's going to deal with the princes and the kings. He's going to put them in their place. And you've got to remember, God is in control always. He is the one who's in charge. He is sovereign. He allows people to come up and, and he uses evil, evil leaders to discipline his people. And I've heard people in America, you know, here in America, well, how come we've got such a bad president? Well, because we deserve him. Well, not even that we voted for him, but we deserve him. This country is moving more and more into evil. We are getting the governmental leaders that we deserve for judgment. The only other judgment that we could have would be to be taken over by a foreign power, which looks like it's going to be an internal power, the internal leaders that overtake us, but we'll see judgment. If we do not repent as a country, we're going to see judgment. It is what we've seen all through history. The, Jew, the, the Israelites, Israel and Judah, both did not repent, did not repent, did not repent, and God sent them into captivity. You see the, the Greek army that took over the world, and they were so sinful that God allowed them to fall. We saw the Roman Empire fall into oblivion. Every empire that's ri risen up and goes into deep sin gets judged and, and dropped. What's interesting is that none of the empires rose up because of their godliness. Mm -hmm. yeah. The Babylonian Empire wasn't... No, uh, never was godly. It was God's tool, but it wasn't godly. Yeah, and that's what he said. He uses, he uses the wrath of man. Yeah. And you're right, none of them were godly. The Egyptian Empire was not godly. The, the, the Greeks weren't godly. The Romans weren't godly. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, none of them were godly. The Medo-Persian, they were the closest probably, but they didn't rise up as a godly nation. But Cyrus was used to rebuild Israel and, and reestablish things. And he was probably the closest of one that kind of had a good, but he was still pretty, pretty uh, harsh at times. Uh, but we see all of this. God is in control. He uses evil to discipline his righteousness for righteousness at times. And that's hard to understand sometimes how we could use evil. As Annie said, Assyria, you know, they were vicious. You know, that king was vicious. And I can't remember his name either at the moment. Off the, I'll remember on the way home. It's not Sargon, is it? Cyrus? Cyrus? Sargon? No. Shalmaneser? That, that's the king. Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus? That's, uh, that's the Persian king. Yeah, that's Persian. I can't remember his name, but he, he was awful. History represents him as being a really vicious vicious king and he mistreated Israel terrible and that's what God said your mistreatment of them you're gone and he put Babylon Babylon in, in, in its place and all of this happens God uses bad people to bring judgment at times and we got it, one now <laughs> the world has got a lot of bad people in charge of it right now uh, this is one of the reasons we look at. This is one of the reasons we look at. You know, we're 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 headed toward the end times because of how evil this world is. Jesus, we were told that in the end days would be like the days of Noah, and it describes the days of Noah where every person did what was good in their own sight. We're starting to see that not just in one or two countries, but all across the world, we're seeing people do what's good in their sight. But that's been going 
going on for decades. But it's getting worse and worse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But we're, I mean, and but yeah, nothing, nothing new under the sun. But this is really the first time in history where it hasn't just been one or you know a couple of nations doing it. It is everywhere. You can't go anywhere without these type of things, and it's partially because of how fast news travels and radios and TV and and all of that that has helped make the whole world they didn't have computers this way. And that's exactly where the yeah. world is going as a whole. Mm -hmm. There used to be some place that would be righteous and you know the rest of the world was, but we're seeing the evil everywhere. And we're seeing homosexuality abound everywhere. The Greeks fell because of homosexuality and sexual sins. The Romans fell because of it. The Egyptians, the Babylon, all these great empires, really, it was sexual sins in their population that God finally judged. And the whole thing, not just homosexuality, but bestiality and, and all the other things that come out there with the sins, adultery, fornication, all of that. And God says, you can only go so far. That was the sins of Canaan the land of Canaan that were so sexually perverted that they didn't even have words for, they, they just considered it sex. You know, they wasn't even a, they didn't consider all these perverted ways as a problem. And God judged them. And this happened in every single empire. Uh, Rome was really bad toward the end. Caligula. Huh? Caligula was especially bad. Yeah, well, they were just really bad. It was, you know, Adultery and fornication was rampant. Homosexuality was rampant, and and the same thing for Greece and all the other all the other major major empires have had that problem. And God finally says, "Nope, you're 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 done with. It. I'm going to go with somebody else." And they did the same thing, and we're seeing the world saying, "Well, it's okay. It's no big deal." I just had a thought. Idolatry, worshiping other gods. And his comparison, his comparing his relationship with us and us with him as married. Mm -hmm. He uses it over and over as an example. And when we pros prostitute or whore or adulterate, that relationship is kicking him in the feet, kicking back at him. Well, it's, it's, it, that is true. It, it is that, that part. And, Satan is working hard to destroy the picture of the family and the marriage because it is the picture of our relationship with God. And we've said this over and over. If he can destroy the picture of the marriage, of the proper marriage, then when God says you're, to Israel, you're my, you're my bride, or Jesus, or he says to the church, you're the son's bride, it takes and really breaks that picture up because people go, well, you know, what's a family? What, you know, what's, what's a husband and wife? When God says he's our father, and Satan has done such a good job to destroy the picture of a father and a family, you know, for good, you know, we've got the fathers who are abusive, and you tell somebody who has, God wants to be your father, and they're used to an abusive father, they're going to go, yeah, right, I don't need another person to, to beat me. You know, for the, for the ones who have been sexually abusive to them, they're going to think, well, I don't need God, and, you know, this is, you know, I... Uh, or the absent father, or the you know father who doesn't care, or whatever you know. We see that the world is now trying to make fathers look irrelevant and useless, which is one of the reasons I don't like watching any show that has a family in it on TV in this day and age, because the father is either abusive or a total idiot. Okay, 
And that's been true for a long time. I've watched some of these older shows that we used to think of good, and most of those fathers were pretty, they might have come up with the right answer at the end, but they were very obtuse and stupid at the beginning of each episode. They didn't see everything. They were dumb, and they might have, you know, in the early days, they came up with the right answer by the end of the show. Uh, nowadays, they're just playing stupid all the way through, and in the 70s or 80s, mothers looked good. Now mothers don't even look good in, in, the, in, the, in the family shows because they're trying to destroy the family. And Satan is working hard. And I'm not saying they're listening, you know, motivated by Satan, but he is the one behind the orchestration of it all. Well, well in a way, they're just portraying society. Uh, so you have to wonder if they're actually following society rather than leading it. They drive it. They drive it more than follow. They, they like to say they're following, but they're, they're driving, they're pushing the edge of what is acceptable even today. Hollywood, you mean? Yeah, Hollywood and shows. They say that they are just following. The, that's not true. I'm old enough to tell you that. <laughs> I've been watching some of those late at night when I get up to put the dogs out. Uh, I'll sit there for a few minutes and watch a game show. I watched those game shows when they were new. And some of them, I was kind of new. I was young, a kid. And the insinuendos, I'd catch it today, went right over my head back then, but the seeds were being planted mm -hmm. towards homosexuality and all this different stuff. Yeah. And a lot of sex. Yeah, and it is, it is really hard, and part of it, I don't know if it's because I'm older that I catch it or just that I am more spiritually attuned to it. I think it's more that I'm more spiritually attuned to it, uh, and I'm watching what Satan is doing. And you're, you're right, to a degree they are reflecting, but they also push the envelope, all the, and they have been for years. And that's why I say you watch the six, 50s and 60s shows, they were pushing the envelope it, to us, it seems mild what they pushed. Yeah. But if you think back at the mindset of that time, they were pushing the envelope hard yeah. in their day. And nowadays, the envelope is hardly out I there. Think it's sickening. Every, I cannot stand any shows. That they have so many of the marriage, two guys or two women. I think that is so sick. Yeah. Well, um, even that, even, but even if it's a real family, it's still a still, totally I mean, poor family. They're not hiding it. Before, they would kind of hide it. Now it was all innuendo. It was kind of, yeah, yeah. you know, they, it was kind of that little thing that, you know, where they didn't portray it directly, but they, yeah. now they portray it directly. And, but it is, it is really hard. And, but the you kids, know, my kids are growing up and watching it. That's the problem. Yes. When my kids were growing up, The Simpsons were brand new, and I wouldn't let them watch it, and they used to get mad at me because all their friends were talking about it, and I'm going, you're not watching a show where the kids think they're smarter than their pa mm -hmm. parents and are putting down their parents. I'm sorry, you're not filling your mind with that. You see, I watched a show that came on right after that. It was my favorite show, Married with Children. And I, looked at <laughs> I thought that was his best. <laughs> we didn't watch that one either. I, I watch those now in reruns, I think, God, how have I ever watched it? <laughs> but you think about this no, is what people are filling that. their minds with instead of what God says about the family. And now we watch and we wonder why our families have so much trouble. And it was on TV. Well, it's partially that. Yeah. No, no truth was put back in their life and they filled their minds with this. And the hard thing about this is here we are taking a written book and a teacher is speaking to you what it means. 
as opposed to what you watch on television. Andy and I, and we were talking about that on the way up. You know, how much of our minds people do not imagine anymore because they're filled all the time with pictures of what, what something says. And they fill their mind with these pictures and pictures. And pictures speak a thousand, you know, they said a, a picture is worth a thousand words. And it really is true. This is why you know, we were also talking about, I do not like Bible stories that are, uh, that are made into movies. Usually because they ad-lib so much to it and add so much to it that it makes it hard for people to pick out what is true and what is not true. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a base in the Bible. You know, it's, it's based in, but they add so much to it. That's, you know, and I, and I, my greatest example of this is whenever, whenever I teach Exodus, inevitably somebody's going to say, well, didn't this happen? It did in the Ten Commandment movie, but it didn't in the Bible. Okay, because we fill our mind with all this extraneous information, and even good stories are this way. I was listening to one from a from a on the Christian radio, and I love the group that does the does the story. And they were doing the, the fall of man with Adam and Eve, and they ad libbed the story so much. And I don't think they followed way off of the story. It's not that they went way off of the story. But if you don't know the story and that was all you had on it, or you didn't know it real well, you're going to think a lot of things happened that didn't happen, and kids listen to that story. But then I think, like, see, I like the Bible. Because I figure people that never read the Bible, if they're watching that, at least they it's like it's an outline. If it and was closer to the real Bible, I'd have liked it. <laughs> but again, I have the same problem with it. They, they add so much to it. Uh, the Bible showed Noah in this leaky, leaky raft getting ready to, you know, f f you know, sink at any moment, and that bothered me. I do not believe that his ark was leaky. Uh -oh. He spent a year on that thing. It was not a leaky craft that barely, barely survived the flood. Well, it was made exactly by God's direction. Yeah. But, but that's some of my problems. Yeah. You know, they show these things, and what, what are people going, you know, if they haven't read the Bible... And, you know, or even if they have read the Bible, they're going to picture this leaky, leaky well, tub being bounced around, almost floating, almost drama, sinking. They, they have to dramatize it to keep people in the, in the movie, but yes. To me, I'm just the opposite. I think it's good because at least then you'll read the Bible to see the truth. At least Maybe. it's showing you because that's yeah. why I'm reading it the second time. Yeah. Because that helped me out a lot. You know, just if they'll read the Bible, I'd have no problem with it because then they'd, hear, they'd learn the yeah. truth. And the truth will make you free. Yeah. But people that will never read the Bible, if they see that movie, at least that will get you some. Possibly. God can use, this is put it this way, God can use anything. Yeah. Okay. A donkey. Uh, yeah, he used a donkey to talk to, to Balaam. I know. Uh, you know. He used probably the worst version of the Bible ever to be produced. The good news for modern man led millions of hippies to the Lord. Okay. Uh, would I recommend that Bible being read by any? Absolutely not. It's a terrible, awful version, but it had the gospel in it, and people read it. And I'd like to throw in here, as much as I fought against that, many, many, many of those mm. drug-induced, sex-filled, live-by-your-own-thing bunch of hoodlums became some of the most wonderful ministers, men of God, that I have ever 
So while I'm not a, not a fan of these things, I know God has used them, I know people have been reached by them, but that doesn't mean they're good. <laughs> uh, you know, just because God can and does use things does not necessarily mean they're good. It goes back to a Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. If it too, they're all things not bad either. Yeah. Also what Jesus says, whoever's not against us is on our side. Is, is for yeah. us. Is for us, not necessarily with us, but they're for us. They're not. Well, I, they're just not fighting against us. I'd like so. to throw in there those ministers that I think so much of. I use King James. Today. Yeah. All right. Let's close in prayer. We went just a little over. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for who you are and how much you love us. We ask that you help us to always see the truth of through your Word and see the see how to apply truth in our day to day lives and and to always have victory in, in our lives through through your truth. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.